Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries. 
on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on the 5th of December. It is a Monday, another week stretches out in front of us, another week of the World Cup, another week of no club football, speculation regarding ownership at Liverpool, at Manchester United, a bizarre article in The Athletic written by, I think it's Luke Chadwick's brother, or somebody called Chadwick anyway, talking about how it wouldn't be a huge surprise if Newcastle's owners decided to sell the club and buy Manchester United. Let me tell you, it would be an enormous surprise if they decided to do that. The sports-washing nations, they tend to buy you know, cheaper clubs, clubs that haven't had any success. That's who they like to buy because it's easier to sports-wash those fans than it is fans of clubs that have had real success. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Let's talk today about golden generations. So Guy had this idea because we had spoken about what a disappointment Belgium were and how for a golden generation with that much talent, De Bruyne, Hazard, Lukaku, Alderweireld, company, Vertonghen, Vermeilen, Witzel, etc., 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 Thibaut Courtois, obviously, they didn't win an international tournament. And when you look at the team's that have been tagged as golden generations. And my source of reference for this is Wikipedia. I've just gone to a page called Golden Generations, and it's given me a list of probably 17 or 18. We're going to go through them and see were they really golden or were they not. Obviously, it's all relative to the nation. So the first one is Australia, 05 to 15. Now, This Australian team is considered their golden generation because they qualified for multiple World Cups and played at multiple Asian Cups. They obviously didn't win a World Cup. They didn't win anything. However, when you look at some of the names, it becomes quite clear that this was, for Australia, based on who they have historically been and what they are now, this was a pretty impressive group. Harry Kuehl, Mark Viduka, Tim Cahill, Mark Schwarzer, Mark Bresciano played in Serie A for a long, long time. Lucas Neal, Craig Moore, Tony Popovich, Scott Chipperfield, Vince Grella, Stan Lazaridis, and John Aloisi. That is probably about as good as it will get for Australia to have all of that group come through at one time. Is it a golden generation? Globally, no. But for them, absolutely. I don't think they underperformed at all. They got to two World Cups. So for me, I would say they did about as well as they could possibly have done. I don't think any of us look at Australia as a nation that's likely to win a World Cup. 
there are too many other sports there competing for resources. And by resources, of course, mean the talent pool and obviously money as well. And it's not like another nation will come on to the USA where they've got a population of 300 million. In 06, they got to the round of 16, which was a great effort. They were strong through qualifying and found their way into the round of 16. So I do think they classify as a golden generation, certainly in terms of Australia and you know their history of football and their likely future with football as well. And like I say, it's a huge country, but remember the population is only around 26 million. There's countries that are a fraction the size that have half the population. You know, like take Belgium, for example. You could probably fit Belgium 100 times over, 200 times over in Australia. And their population is about 17 million or so, maybe 11. It's one or the other. Here's a better way to look at it. Belgium and the Netherlands. Think of the size. Actually, yeah, Belgium's is 11.2 million. No, sorry, 11.6 million. The Netherlands, I think, is 17 million. Yeah, 17 and a half million. So Belgium and Netherlands combined have a bigger population than Australia, despite being a fraction of the size. And they don't have, those countries don't have other sports plucking away at the talent pool. They don't have AFL. They don't have rugby league. They don't have rugby union. They don't have cricket. They've got football. That's where all the talent gets pushed. For Australia, it's going to be tough to ever really be more than they are. A team who gets to the World Cup, maybe maybe at some point they could reach a quarterfinal, but that kind of seems like there might be it might be the upper limit. So yeah, I go with golden generation there. Belgium, 2014 to 2022. So from 2002 to 2012, they didn't qualify for an international tournament. They hosted the 2000 Euros with the Netherlands and then didn't qualify for another tournament for a decade, for 12 years as it turned out, until 2014. The group that came along is outrageous. Company, De Bruyne, Hazard, Lukaku, Courtois, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Vermeilen, Witzel, Dries Mertens, Moussa Dembele. These are exceptional players who have starred at club level over and over and over again. Their best result is a third-place finish at the 2018 World Cup. Now, look, that's not to be sniffed at. It really is not to be sniffed at. And they were the number one team in the FIFA rankings for on multiple occasions. So... It just came down to the fact that in the biggest moments, they weren't quite capable. Both De Bruyne and Hazard have came out and said, 2018, that was their chance. They said that this year's team was good, but aging. It's not aging. It's aged. It's old. 
It's past its best. I've been over the squad time and again. There's too many players there that were there the last time. There hasn't been enough regeneration. And it's not down to a lack of talent. It's down to the manager. And maybe the players having a little bit too much power. Because one thing that happens when you get these type of generations, and especially when you've got one or two all-timers, even if they're just all-timers in terms of your country, they tend to get a little bit too much power and a little bit too big for their boots. And I think that's partly what happened here. Belgium will go down as one of the great disappointments, having failed to win anything with that group. Now, they are a smaller nation, but a population of about 11.6 million is sizable. I mean, look at Uruguay. So you can look at it that they've punched above their weight in terms of the size of their country or whatever else. But with that talent, I do feel like they've let themselves down. Uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, 2010-2017. to Qualified for one World Cup. It's the first World Cup since independence. And won their first ever World Cup game. It gets dicey when you look at the players. Now, Pjanic, excellent. Misimovic, excellent. Dzeko, excellent. Ibisevic, good, but not excellent. Had a bad knee injury that really derailed him. But the fifth player named here is Asmir Begovic. And when Asmir Begovic is the fifth player named, I don't think it's a golden generation. But given the history of Bosnia and Herzegovina, given that they had fought for years to get their own, you know, their own national identity, it, it is the best team they've ever had. I just don't know that I classify it as a golden generation you have to remember Bosnia-Herzegovina were part of the Yugoslav the great Yugoslav teams and those were some special teams so I just don't I don't know that I can qualify this one as a real golden generation but I'm not certainly not going to disparage anyone that wants to that's fair enough um Croatia 2012 to present. So, this is sort of their second golden generation as such. This team with, obviously, Modric. It had Mandzukic. It had Rakitic. It had Perisic, Troluka, Kovacic. They got to a World Cup final. The team in the 90s, I think, was more talented than this. The team that finished third in 98, I think, was more talented than this one. Now, look, Modric might be the greatest Croatian player of all time. It's it's quite possible that he is. But when you look back and you see what they had available to them in 1998 for the World Cup in France, Igor Stimic, Slavin Bilic... Asanovic, Prozaneski, Suker, Boban, Stanic, Soldo, Tudor, Robert Yarny, Dario Simic. For me, that was a more talented group. Now, by the time that World Cup came around, a lot of those players were, you know, 29, 30, even into the early 30s. But they 
they were so much fun in 96 at the Euros. And then they rocked up to this World Cup and were excellent. Absolutely excellent throughout this World Cup. And very unfortunate that they lost to France. Now, there was some shenanigans in that game. Everybody remembers Slavon Bilic. But they lost 2-1 to France through two goals from Lillian Turan. Not a player known as a goal-scoring threat. But he gets the two goals and knocks Croatia out. And funnily enough, they're the only two goals he's ever scored for France. In his entire career, he only scored 50 goals for club and country. And 11 of them came from Monaco, kind of pre-96, playing in, in France. That French team deserved, obviously, without question, to win that World Cup. They were the best team. But Croatia were unfortunate. And then they beat the Netherlands in the um, third and fourth place playoff. But for me, that team is is the golden generation of Croatian football. The, the 96 to 98 group that emerged after the fallout in Yugoslavia, the war in the Balkans, the battle for independence. This team was just such a joy to watch. And if you if you remember the 96 Euros, they just they were a lot of fun to watch. And they played with a real bravado and a real swagger about themselves that you just weren't really used to. Like the Yugoslav teams that some of those players had been part of, they were quite understated. And there was outrageous talent in them, obviously, but they didn't have that sort of internal swagger about themselves. Croatia, when they rocked up to this World Cup, this Euros in 96 and then the, that World Cup in 98, they just played like they believed they were the best team there. And when you look at that squad, it's it's hard to argue that they weren't maybe just one player shy. Maybe if they'd been a little bit better in terms of goalkeeper. But Yarny was a great left back. Stimic, Stimic and Bilic, brilliant at centre back. Dario Simic emerged in 96 and then was more regular in 98. He was a really good defender. Prozanecki is one of my all-time favourite players. Asanovic was great. Boban is right up there as well as one of my favourite players. Davor Suker, I first saw him play for Sevilla. Thought he looked interesting. He moved to Real Madrid when Capello went there. Capello bought him and Predrag Mijatovic and put the two of them in a front three with Raul. And then they had Seydorf. Redondo and Carambu in midfield, and they were just they won the league that year over Bobby Robson's Barcelona. But Suker just was outrageous. That left foot, he could score any type of goal. I would say Croatia's real golden generation was that team, even though this team did get to a World Cup final, so they did go one better than that team. I, I would still say that team. Uh England 01 to 07. Beckham, Owen, Gerrard, Rio Ferdinand, 
Lampard, Rooney, Cole, Ashley Cole, Joe Cole, Skulls, Gerard, John Terry. I think there's some overrated players in this group. Joe Cole, overrated. All the talent never showed what he was really capable of. He probably needed to stay at West Ham and be the big fish in a small pond. John Terry, hugely overrated. Rio Ferdinand, hugely overrated. Skulls, Gerrard and Lampard, they couldn't figure out the balance in midfield. They needed a holding midfielder. Ideally, what they needed to do was leave one of Lampard or Skulls out. I would leave Lampard out because looking at it right, if you think about Beckham on the right wing, you have to have Beckham on the right wing, his ability to deliver world-class ball to forward players is unmatched. Played Gerrard on the left, which both Sven and Capello did, allowing him to cut in field and move on to his right foot and just unleash holy hell on everybody. You do that and you can play with a flat four out of possession and a box midfield in possession where those players, Beckham and Gerrard, can play narrow or wide and they can drift and they can find all the pockets of space they need. But behind that, you need a solid two. Skulls could run a game from centre midfield as long as that's what you asked them to do. Just run a game from there. Don't worry about getting forward. Leave it to the other two. The fullbacks are going to go, you're going to sit, and it's going to be you and this other fella, and he's going to do the ball winning, and you're going to run the game. The fella to to do the ball winning was Owen Hargreaves, and unfortunately, he just couldn't stay fit. But Sven's plan, when Hargreaves emerged, and Gerrard emerged, was Beckham, Hargreaves, Scholes, and Gerrard on the left. In a midfield that would have been based on what he had done at Lazio, Stankovic, You've got Beckham. Simeone, you've got Hargreaves. Veron, you've got Skulls. Nedved, you've got Gerard. Slightly different types of players, obviously, and obviously varying degrees of talent. Some of the English players are better. Some of those Lazio players are better. But the makeup of the midfield would have worked the same way. Unfortunately, two things happened. Number one, Lampard really emerged as somebody you couldn't leave out. And Hargreaves couldn't stay fit. Michael Carrick would have been the other option to come into that midfield. Another very, very good player, hugely underrated. But Michael Carrick didn't have the dynamic nature of Owen Hargreaves, couldn't cover ground the way Hargreaves could. So he wasn't as strong from... In that midfield, he wasn't... Or they collectively maybe weren't as strong as they would have been with Hargreaves. Even though Carrick himself was excellent defensively, with great positional sense and an ability to read the game that was of an elite level. Um, and like I said, Lampard coming along, that kind of is what pushed Scholes into retirement because he wasn't enjoying it, didn't like being a squad player. And Sven couldn't figure out the balance then with Lampard because Lampard couldn't sit and control the midfield because he didn't have that in his game. And it was taking away what was best about Frank Lampard, which was his ability to get forward and get goals. As it turns out, Lampard didn't score at the same kind of rate for England that he did at club level. And I've always sort of thought if he just committed to that midfield and if they could have kept Hargreaves fit, even Nicky Butt could have done a job in there for a number of years instead of Hargreaves. 
I do think they would have had a lot more success. Like I said, Terry and Rio, hugely overrated. The big issue there was Ledley King and Jonathan Woodgate couldn't stay fit. If those two had stayed fit, in my opinion, they would have been England's starting centre-backs. I think Woodgate was a better footballer than John Terry. I think Ledley King is comfortably the best defender of the four. Ashley Cole is an all-time great left-back. There's no fault on him. But a Cole Gerrard left wing would have been brilliant had the rest of the team worked well together. Owen and Rooney didn't work. And then obviously Owen's career took a real dip very quickly after Rooney sort of appeared on the scene. And they never found the right partner for Rooney. So that was a problem as well. The other issues, they never had a good goalkeeper and they never had a top-end right-back. Gary Neville was the right-back for a long time. I mean, Gary Neville was a solid player. He's a good player, but he was a level below everybody else, and you could you could see that. Um, so, yeah, overall, I'm not overly surprised that England didn't win anything. Uh, they did, of course, fail to qualify for the 2008 Euros, having flopped out in 04 having failed quite miserably at uh, two World Cups, it's no surprise to me that they didn't win anything. But there is a world in which it all worked. Because the players were there, bar, bar a goalkeeper, because you can get away with a right back. If they'd had a better goalkeeper and figured out the balance a bit better in midfield and attack, I, I do think injuries were the biggest factor, though. Injury to Hargreaves and Ledley King in particular because he was he was just a different class. Uh moving on then France 98 to 06 don't need to get into too much of this one. They won the World Cup and then they won the European Championships. Now they obviously had a very disappointing 2002 World Cup, but they did go on obviously to get to the final in 06. Um Zidane, Henri, Trezeguet, Turam, Blanc, Perez, Vieira, Deschamps, Petit, Barthez, Desai, Lazarazu. That's very special. That's very special. There's no need to go into them too much. Germany 06 to 14. I don't think, I think you're stretching going back to 06 because one of the reasons 2014 happened is because Germany were so disappointing in 06. Um, But the 2014 team that won the World Cup was a special group. Golden generation, though, I wouldn't say so. Not for Germany. Like, consider what Germany have done. No, I'm not having that as a golden generation. I'm sorry. I'm just not. The Miroslav Klose years. Yeah, that is exactly what it is, Guy. It's the Miroslav Klose years. But I'm not having it as a as a golden generation. I'm sorry. For For unified Germany, maybe... But we can't just ignore what West Germany did. We just can't ignore that. So, no, I'm I'm not having that. Absolutely not. Uh, Moving on. Hungary, 1950 to 1956. This is maybe the team that fascinates me the most. Um, I've spent years finding as much footage of this team as I can. And it was a truly special group of players. Like you're talking about 
Ferenc Pushkas, who's one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. Sander Koksik, also one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. Josef Bosik in midfield, outstanding. Nander Haideguti, who was maybe the kind of first ever false nine, because he would play centrally and drop off, and Coxix and, and Puskas would press into that area, and just the goals that those two scored were out, outrageous. Ferenc Puskas' record for Hungary, 84 goals in 85 games. And Sander Cox's 75 goals in 68 games. Unstoppable, the two of them together. They finished as runners-up in the World Cup in 1954. Still to this day, no idea how they didn't win it. They did win the Olympics in 52. Now remember, football at the Olympics back then was seen as a much bigger deal than it is now. Because you didn't have your Euros and your... Cup America is getting, you know, drawing attention the way that they do now. You had the World Cup and the Olympics. So every two years, there was a major tournament. This team went and won the Olympics and then finishes runners-up in the World Cup. I mean, the team the team is sensational. Sibor, Gorozics, like it was just Gustav Sebes as the manager. Maybe the most influential manager in the history of world football and the funny, funniest part is there's a legendary player of that era who didn't play for Hungary at the time in Laszlo Kabala now Younger fans might not be as familiar with him. Barcelona fans will tell you he's one of the greatest players of all time. Um, he had left Hungary as a political refugee or whatever it was, and he he'd sought out to get out of to get out of Hungary. He went to um, Austria, where the Allies had part of it. Went to Italy. Played in a couple of games there. The Hungarian Football Federation accused him of breach of contract, failing to do his military service and leaving the country without permission. He was banned from playing football for a year by FIFA, who obviously were, you know, as as good then as they are now. Um, but yeah, like it, he would have been another addition to that squad and he might have been the difference in that World Cup. Maybe he would have been the one that pushed him over the top in in 1954. Uh, but that, them, to me, absolutely. Um, Italy, 98-06. to Maldini, Cannavaro, Nesta, Gigi Buffon, Del Piero, Totti. Yeah, I, I, I'm willing to get on board with that. I know Italy have had great teams prior to that. But I don't know that they had more talent at one time than that group. They obviously went on to win the World Cup in 06 without Maldini. But I think I would back that as a golden generation. Uh, Portugal, 2000 to 2006. 
Rui Costa, Pinto, Paulo Sosa, Castinha, Ricardo Carvalho, Luis Figo, Nuno Gomez, Jao Paleta, Deco, Simao, and Cristiano Ronaldo. I, I think they're cutting short what this generation was because this is, you know, Costa, Sosa, Figo, they're the guys that won FIFA Youth Championships in 89 and 91. Um, I suppose they did peak. They did peak through those early nineties. They got to the world, the semi-finals of Euro two thousand. They got to the final of Euro two thousand and four, and somehow lost to a really average Greece team. World Cup semi-finals in 06. In in yeah, in 06. So I think that's fair enough. Spain is an obvious one, 06 to 14. There's no real reason to get into that. Everybody remembers those teams. Everybody remembers the players. They won three international tournaments in a row. And that is outrageous and might never happen again. So, yeah, they're definitely in. And I'm definitely having Yugoslavia 87 to 92. That is a ridiculous group of talent. Boksic, Prozanecki, Stimac, Yarny. Savicevic, Mihailovic, Suker, Boban, Vladimir Jogic, what a player. Uh, Pixie was part of that group as well, maybe the most talented of them. Um, you also had Darko Panchev. No, not Darko. Is it Darko Panchev? Well, Darko Panchev, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Darko Panchev. He was part of that group as well. Um, that group was largely the Red Star Belgrade team. That was it was around at the time. Um, absolutely, they are definitely in. That is that is sensational. And if it wasn't for the Yugoslav wars breaking out and them getting kicked out of the ninety-two Euros, they may well have gone on and won it because at the time they were probably the most talented team around. They made the quarterfinals of the nineteen ninety World Cup. Then Red Star won the European Cup. And they were really on the ascent at that point. So, yeah, they're definitely in. Uh, Ivory Coast. Oh, sorry, Algeria. They've given them two, 2010 to 2014 and 2019 to 2022. Um, They obviously did win the AFCON in 19. They won the Arab Cup. And then obviously they didn't qualify for the World Cup or get or do particularly well at the, this year's AFCON. So would we say that's a golden generation? Yeah, well they won an AFCON, but I think they've had a better they've had better teams before, haven't they? I would say they've had better teams. Like the the start of this tells us that the first team, the 2010 2014 team is described as the second golden generation of Algerian football. I don't think Algeria has had three golden generations. And I don't think you can have golden generations five years apart. So um, we'll give them... We'll, no, we won't give them the second one. We'll look at their original team, 82, 86, 90, that group of players that got the two World Cups and won an AFCON, that's the Algerian golden generation, and anything else can just sit by. Uh, Ivory Coast. 06-15. Yaya and Kolo Toure, Didier Zakora, Emmanuel Abue, Czech Teote, 
Jovino, Solomon Kalou, and of course Didier Drogba. Um, I I think I'd be, I'd be okay with going with that as a golden generation. That's a pretty special group of players. Won an Afcon, got the two other finals. Yeah, um, and obviously played in three World Cups. So their first ever World Cups as well. Oh six, ten. And 14. We're going with that as a golden generation. Chile 07 to 17. Seems like a long time. They did obviously win those two uh, Copa Americas in 15 and 16. Claudio Bravo, Eduardo Vargas, Mark Gonzalez, Maurizio Isla. Jan Bossier, Gary Medell. I mean, it's not like they're not. It's not a who's who of players, but the two real standouts, obviously, Alexis Sanchez and Arturo Vidal. If for 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 Chile, it is their golden generation, and that's just how it is. They didn't get to the 2018 World Cup, and that sort of finished them off. But um, yeah, I'm happy to take that. Uh Colombia, 2012 to 2022. I'm not having them as. I'm not having it. No. No, I'm not having that as a golden generation. I'm sorry. They had a golden generation in the 80s and 90s. I'll accept that one. I'm not accepting this one. Uh, Canada 2020 moving forward. I think so. I think so. It's the the greatest group of players Canada have ever had. And when we look at Alfonso Davies, when we look at Jonathan Davis, no, Jonathan Davies, Alfonso Davis and Jonathan David, uh, I do think it's fair to say this is the most talented group of players they've ever had, even with just those two. But it's not just those two. There are other really talented young players in that group as well. Uh, Ishmael Kone, the young midfielder, currently at Montreal. He is on his way to Watford, by the way. That was broken yesterday. Uh, He looks a real find in midfield. Uh, Tejan Buchanan was somebody given a name given to me before the tournament and I have to say I was I was quite impressed by what I saw I think he has a real chance to be a good player um, they obviously need a lot more you can't have a golden generation with four players but the likes of Jaden Nelson the likes of Theo Corbeno the likes of uh, Luca Kalosha these are players that they can build around moving forward. I think for Canadian football, yeah, I think so. Like like with the Australians, I don't think Canada will ever win a World Cup. Uh, because again, I just think there's too much of a, of a battle for resources. And they don't have the huge population, despite the size of their country. You've got ice hockey being wildly popular. Baseball's pretty popular. Basketball's very popular. Football is is growing, but is behind them. Now, their current population, they reckon, is about 39 million. So, again, that population is coming up. That's up nearly 2 million, or, yeah, almost 2 million people in 12 months. So... Maybe they can continue to, you know, grow, expand the talent bed, whatever. I don't see them as a team that will win the World Cup, but I, I do think this could be definitely seen as a golden generation. And then we have the USA. And again, it is their current team. And I am in agreement. I do think this is the greatest ever 
American era of football. Now, again, they have to compete for resources. Baseball, basketball, American football, ice hockey, lacrosse, whatever else people are into. But they do have the population. There's an enormous population in the USA. So, yeah. Gio Reyna, Weston McKenney, Brandon Aronson, Brandon Aronson, his brother as well, super talented uh, Paxton. He'll be in the next squad. Eunice Musa. I'm not having Serginho Dest and Timothy Way as golden generation members, though. They're they're good. They're not good enough. Uh, Tyler Adams, I'm having in there for certain. But, you know, I'm, and obviously, uh, the player we call Pulisic, but it's actually Pulisic. So, between Pulisic, Reyna, Aronson, the other Aronson, Musa, Potentially Ricardo Pepe, if he can get himself back on track, that could be something special. It really could be something special. So I do think there's a world in which we could one day see the Americans win the World Cup. I don't think it'll be 2026. I don't think it'll be 2030. But the, the advantage that America has, and look, Canada and Australia benefit from this as well, is you get a lot of Europeans who emigrate to those countries. And you also get a lot of players, professional players, when they retire, who move to those countries. They might go and finish their career off there. And then their issue, to use the royal term, um, all of a sudden, look look at, look at Tim Weah. Dad's Liberian, but he was born in New York and Therefore, he, he's an American. I think this will be America's golden generation. Guy is asking if I think Russia can win a World Cup. I don't know, to be honest. There's there's always a lot of talent that comes through, through the Russian system. But, like, there just seems to be some sort of a mental block. Maybe it's because they're still a little bit cut off. And obviously at the moment, they're a lot cut off. But while the Cold War ended, it never really ceased. And there's always been this look of suspicion in both directions, from Russia outwards and from outwards in at Russia. And the players don't really travel all that well. They don't tend to do all that well outside their own country. A few have over the years, like Mostovoy and Karpin and Kinchelskis, but... There was a great Soviet team, and I think that was probably it for them. That was probably their their best chance. But um, look, maybe, but it will take it would take a, a change in mindset. Would be the one. Um, guy asked me what countries I think could have a golden generation. I think France is an obvious one. Now it would it would be a real second golden generation if they win the, the World Cup this year. That's two in a row. And uh, that's obviously a very, very special achievement. But when you start to look at their squad and their under-21s, you can see a path for three in a row, four in a row. Like, Kylian Mbappe is 23. He realistically could play in another three World Cups. Goalkeeper is an issue, but they've got Magnon coming 
along. He'll be back for the next one. They've got Albin Lafont, and no doubt there's a couple of talented goalkeepers popping up. There's a plethora of left backs and an absolute I, I don't even know what you'd describe that group of centre backs as. But that group of centre backs is even stronger than you think it is. It is even stronger than you think it is. <clears throat> the right-back position is an issue, but Malo Gusto looks like he will solve that problem. Young right-back at Leon. Midfield is outrageous. Chiumeni, Camavinga, Kakare, Guendozi, if he's your bag. There's plenty more to come as well. Um, Desiree Doe of, I probably butchered his name, but keep an eye on him, plays for Wren sensational like sensational talent um and then obviously in attack you've got Usman you've got Kingsley Coleman Matthias Tell looks a really special talent you've got Nkunku you can go on and on and obviously you've got Kylian Mbappe who I believe is establishing himself right now as the best player on the planet and if he's the best player on the planet for the next eight years, which is possible. I know it's a big stretch to say it, but it's possible. Then his team are going to have a chance and the talent around him will be ludicrous. Ludicrous. And there is lads right now who are 12 and 13, who in eight years at the 2030 World Cup, when Mbappe is 31 and probably still outrageous, those lads are going to be 2021. So there's players we've not yet heard of who will join this generation. I I think France could dominate international football for, for a long time. For a long time. I I don't know that they'll do what Spain did. I don't know, because I don't think they take the Euros as seriously. But it wouldn't surprise me if they win the World Cup this year and maybe again in four years. And maybe again in eight years. It wouldn't surprise me. that I know it, it's something that hasn't been done before. But I I don't know that we've ever seen this level of strength and depth across the board. And it doesn't seem like it's slowing down. It really doesn't seem like it's slowing down. Like every year there's one or two new, incredible French talents. I didn't even mention Moussa Diaby. I mean, Adley. There's just... It is it is ridiculous how much talent they have available. Portugal's the other one, I think, post-Cristiano with a new manager. I do think there's a possibility for them to go and win a Euros. I think France will be better than them, but I think they could be the team that takes advantage of France maybe not being fully focused at a Euros. So Portugal are capable. They've got the talent, João Felix, Rafael Leao, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes. Now, unfortunately for them, they're both, what, 27, 28. So they've lost big chunks in their national career while pandering to Cristiano. But, you know, there's an awful lot of young talent, the likes of Neto, Trinquiao, uh, Pedro Cancalves. These players are all going to come forward in the next couple of years for Portugal. And I do think we could see a, a, a second golden generation from Portugal to follow on the legacy of Figo and Rui Costa. And there might even be more talent because it might be more widely spread. So yeah, those are the two I'd look at. 
Brazil are capable at any moment of just finding 12 players that are unbelievable in a two-year span. But I'm not seeing... Like, I can see the makings of a potentially great Brazilian attack. I'm not seeing it in midfield or in defence with them. Um, With France, I think it's all over the pitch. With Portugal... It's pretty close to all over the pitch as well. So, yeah, those would be the two I'd say to keep an eye on. Um, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will quickly run through the gossip and we will have ourselves a little chat, not a big chat, just a little chat about Leeds United. So we'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, Leeds United. This season, they have Jesse Marsh in charge, obviously. He took over at the tail end of last season when uh, Marcelo Bielsa was moved on. They went out in the summer. They brought in Brendan Aronson. They brought in Rasmus Christensen, Mark Roca, Tyler Adams, Luis Sinistera, Wilfred Nonto. All very, very exciting additions. They also added Sonny Perkins, young striker from West Ham, very highly rated. And Darko Gabby, young attacking midfield player from Manchester City. Uh, and Joel Robles was brought in as a an experienced backup goalkeeper, which I thought was something they needed. Of course, they lost their two best players in Calvin Phillips and Rafinha. My feeling on it was, I think they'll get stronger in the aggregate. So while Adams and Roca aren't as good individually as Phillips, collectively they're better than Phillips and anybody else that Leeds could have put together last season. Um, while individually Sinistera and Aronson and Nonto aren't as good as Rafinha at the moment, who knows what happens in the future. They've all got big upside as a trio, that trio could be better than what we were seeing from Leeds in the line of three behind the striker last season. So I think they took a long-term look, and I think they've done really well with their recruitment. I think this is probably the best summer of recruitment they've had since they came up. I know they had bought some really good players, but then they also let themselves short a couple of times. Again, this season, I do think they left themselves a little bit short, uh, particularly at centre-back. I would have liked to have seen a starting centre-back come in. Because for me, Liam Cooper is a liability. Um, they're using Cock and Lorente the right way, which is to rotate them to keep them fit. It's that other spot that's now problematic. I really like Struik playing left back. I think that's helped. Um, and obviously they've got him now in junior Firpo. Rasmus Christensen's come in. He's been really good at right back. He's a big step up from Luke Ayling. They began the season with a win over Wolves. Oh, breaking news. Marca, our report, Marca, or is it Marca or Marca? I've always thought it was Marca. Uh, are reporting that Cristiano Ronaldo has agreed to sign for El Nazir in Saudi Arabia a two and a half year contract worth 500 million in total. This will tell you where his focus is. It's on money and goals. The money is fine. 
but you've he's already got a lot of money. Um, but it also tells you there's no market for him in Europe. No one wants him. No one wants him. Like, let's be honest. He's going to go to Saudi Arabia. He's going to score a ton of goals. And he's going to probably... This is throwing me off my leads, chat. Uh, let's see. What's the career goal tally right now? So 118 for Portugal and at club level 701. So that gives us 819. So to get to 1,000 goals, which I think is what he wants, I think that's his aim, is 1,000 career goals. He needs 181 goals. Now, you're not getting that in two and a half seasons. I don't care what league you're playing in. But that league will be very easy for him from a physical point of view. They'll allow him to stand up front and do nothing and if everybody else do is running for him. So it wouldn't surprise me if he went there and stayed there for five years until he gets to a 1,000 goals. Wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. And then his, his, his fanboys will tell us how he's dominated another league because uh, it's the same. Anyway, back to Leeds. Leeds began the season with a 2-1 win over Wolves. They were a little bit fortunate. Wolves were the better team on the day, but they came from behind after Pedenza's goal. Rodrigo scored, Aitnuri scored. It was a good point for Leeds. They went to Southampton. They went 2-0 up. Rodrigo scored twice and threw it, threw it away. Very disappointing. But still a solid point on the road. Then they hammered Chelsea. Aronson scored. Rodrigo scored. Harrison scored. They were really impressive on the day. They lost 1-0 to Brighton, which is not a bad result because Brighton are really good. They got a 1-1 draw at home with Everton, which was disappointing. Anthony Gordon scored, but they fought back and got a draw with Sinistera's first goal for the club. Then they got walloped by Brentford. Um... Sinistera and Roca got the goals for them, but an Ivan Tony Hattrick, Brian Mbomo and Johan Wiesa scored for Brentford. Then they drew 0 0 with Villa. I think that's a bit of a disappointing one. However, they did play the basically the entire second half with 10 men. So, in that regard, it's not a bad result. Then they had a poor run of four defeats in a row, and a lot of pressure started to build on Jesse Marsh. They lost to Crystal Palace away. It's not a bad result, but they did go one up and then managed to throw it away. Lost at home to Arsenal. Again, it's not a bad result at all. Lost 2-0 away to Leicester. Leicester were turning the season around, so not the worst result. Um, But the 3-2 home defeat by Fulham will be disappointing for them. They went one up, then Fulham equalised and eventually went 3-1 ahead. Somerville did score late to get them back in the game, but it was too little too late. Then they went to Anfield to beat Liverpool. And that was a great result, and it lifted a lot of the pressure off Marsh. Then they had an absolutely mental game against Bournemouth, where they went 1-0 up, went 3-1 down, and then fought back to win the game 4-3. Again, Somerville gets a late winner. So if you're keeping tally, that's three games in a row where Somerville scored a late goal. And then they played Leeds. This time, Somerville scored an early goal. So four goals in four games for him. Sorry, they played Spurs, I should say. He scored early. Spurs got back in it. Then Leeds went 2-1 up. Then it was 2-2. 
Leeds went 3-2 up, but Benton Curra gets two late goals and Tottenham win the game. Of their defeats, the scoreline in the Brentford one, I think, will will hurt them. But in fairness, losing away to Brighton, not a bad result. Losing away to Brentford, not a bad result, just a bad scoreline. Losing away to Palace, not a bad result. Losing at home to Arsenal, not a bad result. Losing away to Leicester, I don't think it's a terrible result, to be fair. I think losing at home to Fulham for them is a bad result. And I think the two draws they had at home to Everton and Villa are disappointing as well. I don't think losing away to Spurs is a bad result. This Leeds team are fun. They score a fair bit. They've got 22 goals. They concede a lot, though. 26 goals. That's something they need to work on. Goal difference of negative four when you've scored 22 is is a concern. They're 15th in the table, but because the table is so condensed, they're only six points off Chelsea, who sit eighth. They've played a game less than Bournemouth, Leicester, and Aston Villa, who are above them. If they win that game in hand, which is against Manchester United, so it's not an easy game, they will go to 12th in the league. So, all things considered, it's not too bad. Four wins, three draws, seven defeats. You've got to maybe start turning some of those defeats into draws and turn some of the easier draws into wins. But I do think there's um real reason for optimism around Leeds United right now. Like, there's a lot of really good players. Melier is a talented goalkeeper, but I just don't know that he's what they need right now. And I don't know that it's necessarily what he needs right now to continually concede so many goals. But he is very talented, as is Christopher Klassen, the uh, young Norwegian keeper they have. And they've got Joel Robles. So goalkeeper-wise, they're okay. Right back, you've got Christensen, you've got Ailing. I'm not a fan of Ailing, but he's fine as a backup. And they do have uh, young Cody Drama as well as the kind of future competition for Christensen. So they're well-stocked there. Left back, I really like how Streak has played there this season. And I think Junior Firpo is a better player than we've seen so far at Leeds. They're very different types of left backs, which is a good thing. They can have the more attack-minded Firpo or the more defensive Streak. Right side centre-back, I like Cock. I like... That doesn't sound good at all, does it? Um, <laughs> um, I like Lorente. I think... Together, they make one good centre-back. And if you keep them rotating, I think that's how that works well. I don't like Liam Cooper. I think they absolutely need to go and find a left-sided centre-back. They've got a couple of good young players like Leo Hjeld, who can be you know backups and maybe long-term fits. But for me, the priority in January should be a centre-back. Go and find a centre-back because I, I think it's a big need for you. I'd also look for a bit of depth in central midfield because they've got Rohar, they have Adams. They don't really have a whole lot of much behind that other than kids. Now, Matthias Glish can play in there and that's fine. But the rest are largely kids in that role. Adam Forshoff, I mean, not a Premier League caliber player. 
Jack Harrison maybe could play in centre midfield. That might be something we see a bit more in the second half of the season because he's not a regular automatic starter now in the last little while in the front in the three behind the striker. Um, Somerville has really kicked on and he is making a real case to be a regular part of the certainly the the players that play, say the first 14. Aronson, I think, is an absolute star in the making. Um, I think Sinister is super talented as well. Nonto, I think, is is a potential star in the making as well. He's got so much talent and so much speed as well. And then there's there's some other good young players to play in that second line. The other thing they need is they need someone up front because I didn't even mention Rodrigo. He's having a good season, to his credit, nine goals already. He's played sort of anywhere along, anywhere in the front four. Um, but I do think they could do with a, a maybe looking for a number nine. Maybe it's one for the summer. Maybe it's because there's enough goals in this team, I think, to, to keep them up. But I think the summer, it has to be a number nine. For January, prioritize a centre-back and a, and a bit of depth in holding midfield. Someone that can come in and do a job when Tyler Adams misses a game or Roja misses a game. A ball winner, someone who's comfortable in possession. Doesn't have to be a star. Can just be, you know, a serviceable, run-of-the-mill player. Could be a young player who's ready to step up. But they have a lot of young players, so maybe a bit more experience wouldn't be wouldn't be too bad. Um, but yeah, centre-back has to be the priority. Centre-back, holding midfielder, and then start looking for a striker for the summer. Because Bamford, unfortunately, you just can't rely on. This is the second season in a row now where he's going to be plagued by injuries. And Bamford as a backup striker would be a great option. And obviously you've got Joey Gellhardt as well. But if, if you get a striker in, maybe you can loan Gellhardt out and get him real minutes somewhere. Um, and he comes back a different player. They obviously do own Dan James as well. Um, I, I'd i like to, if I was Leeds, I'd want him in my squad. Because I, I do think as a kind of roadrunner option off the bench, I think he could do a lot worse. Um I'm bullish on Leeds. I am. I like Marsh. I like the players. I think they can go out in January, get one more in. There's obviously talk of a takeover at the moment that Rad Razani might sell his share in the club to 49ers Enterprises, which are the the kind of management group of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, the York, basically, it's the York family, isn't it? It's it's Jed York, it's John York, and it's Denise DiBartolo York. They are 49ers Enterprises, them and some investors. So uh, that could be a very promising thing for Leeds. But I think Radrazani is really important. I do. I, I think he's just, he's he's the guy that's done all this. This is all him. You know, he, he brought them up. He went and found that investment. He brought in Bielsa, et cetera, et cetera. I think Victor Orta had a good summer. Overall, I've criticized him a lot in the past. I think he did well in the summer. I think he needs to do well again in January, though. Get a centre back. That's my message to leave. Right, two quick bits before we hit the gossip. Declan Rice has said England have silenced the critics with faultless performances. Every time this guy opens his mouth, he annoys me. They were poor against Iran for 30 minutes. They were god-awful against America for 60 minutes. They were poor against Wales for 45 minutes. They were poor last night for 35 minutes as well. If he thinks that's faultless, 
maybe it shows why West Ham are currently sitting 16th in the league. He hasn't been particularly good in this World Cup. He has not been particularly good in this World Cup. And I think he's talking about England not getting the credit they deserve. For what? Who have you beaten? You beat Iran. You were expected to beat Iran. Yes, you beat them 6-2. Great. Congratulations. You beat them 6-2. Then you got outplayed by the USA. Then you beat a really bad Wales team. And you beat a bang average Senegal. These are four teams you should have been wiping the floor with. These are teams you're expected to beat. It's not little old England. You're one of the favoured nations to win the World Cup. You're a footballing powerhouse. This guy needs to stop talking. Raheem Sterling has left the England squad to travel home after his family were the victims of an armed break-in at their home. Uh, The family were in the home when armed gunmen broke in and ransacked the place. Really, really horrible moment for Raheem Sterling. Obviously, Ben White also left the England squad, and he's gone back for personal reasons. We don't yet know much of what's gone on there, but this is really tough for Sterling. This is the second time in four years that his home has been broken into. The last time three burglars were caught, they were jailed. But this this is horrible for him. And he's travelling home, he's putting family first as is as is right. He says or the reports are that he, he does want to return, but he is quite shaken up by this incident. So we'll see what happens with Raheem, whether or not he comes back. I will say last night Saka and Foden both played well. But Raheem is one of Gareth Southgate's most trusted players. And if he's there, he's in the team. Um, He was obviously rested for the Wales game, but I I think he would have started last night if not for this. Um, Let's hit the gossip then. Chelsea will pay €70 million or £60 million to sign Christopher Nkunku on a contract until 2028. So it would be a five-year deal from the summer. Uh, Real Madrid would still be willing to sign Kylian Mbappe. Of course they would. Mbappe met Robert Lewandowski last summer in a bid to convince him to join PSG instead of signing for Barcelona. Fair play. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo is very tempted to join Chelsea. It looks like Graham Potter has won the battle with Todd Bowley there on that one. Tottenham are still interested in signing Adama Traore. He'd make sense as a backup for Kulosevsky, someone that can pick up the ball in midfield and carry it forward. Um, Because they do do lack a link between midfield and attack. Liverpool are monitoring Sofian Amrabat. Fair enough, good player. Uh, Lille's Jonathan David says playing in the Premier League remains a dream of his. He had a stinky World Cup, so uh, he won't have done himself any favours with his performances there. But I'm sure there are Premier League clubs very keen on him. He's a good player. Inter Milan have made contact with the agent of Frank Kessie. That's an old one. Bayer Leverkusen have been in contact with Club Pachuca over Luis Chavez after the 26-year-old, 26-year-old impressed at the World Cup for Mexico. 
Bayer Leverkusen don't sign anybody based on an international tournament. So if they were impressed with him, they were impressed with him before this tournament. Newcastle are open to offers for Ryan Frazier. I don't think they're going to get many big offers, but he's a good player. Championship clubs will want him. Real Madrid forward Eden Hazard is considering retiring from international football. That's good because he retired from club football three years ago. Uh, Louis van Gaal has hinted at the possibility of taking the Belgian job. Well, wouldn't that put the cat among the pigeons? Jurgen Klopp is not interested in succeeding Hansi Flick if he is sacked as Germany manager, as the German coach intends to fulfil his contract at Liverpool, which runs till 2026. I, I don't think Hansi will get sacked. I could be wrong. I could be very wrong, but I don't think he will get sacked. Todd Bowley is considering moving the women's team from their King's Meadow Stadium to a ground with a greater capacity. That's good to see. That is good to see. Director of Research Ian Graham is the latest member of Liverpool's backroom staff to leave the club, and they fear he will now join Manchester. It's Wayne Vesey, so it's crap. So don't don't pay any attention to that. Uh, he has left, but it doesn't look likely that he'll join United at all. Uh, Liverpool owners Fenway Sports Group are likely to sell only part of the club. Uh, there's varying reports on what their plans are. Nobody quite seems to know. It does make sense for them to say that they're open to a part sale to try and push the price up and maybe get what they want for the whole club. Manchester City would be willing to sell Jack Grealish to fund the transfer of Jude Bellingham. Again, it's Football Insider, so it's garbage. Bellingham is also a target for Paris Saint-Germain. Bellingham and Mbappe together could be fun. Manchester United may be forced to sell Marcus Rashford as the England forward reaches the end of his contract. This is a great one. Real Madrid are interested in him as a successor to Karim Benzema. Uh, No. Uh, Cristiano to Al-Nazir, we've gone over. Tottenham and Chelsea's interest in Josco Gvardiol is growing before the January transfer window. He'd be so good at Spurs. He would be absolutely unbelievable in, in a Conte back three. If Barcelona do not approach Thomas Mounier, then the Belgian right back will listen to offers from AC Milan, Manchester United, Juventus, and two other clubs. His agent is working overtime here. Manchester United are pursuing Kim Min Jae, but, but Napoli want to tie him down to a long contract with no release clause. And if he's got sense, that's what he'll do. He'll stay there and be part of what looks to be something special. Matthias Cunha is set to join Wolves in the January transfer. That would be a great signing. Arsenal are interested in signing Marco Asensio in January, running out of contract back up to Saka. And maybe not a bad idea. Manchester United and Newcastle will have to pay between 60 and 70 million for Moises Casado. That's fine. Neither of them are getting him. Uh, Leeds, uh, Leeds manager Jesse Marsh says the club were so close to signing Cody Gakbo. And yeah, they're not going to get him now, unfortunately. But yeah, they were apparently very, very close to getting him. Um, would have been interesting to see him play as the nine in that team. After helping the Netherlands reach the Dutch, the World Cup quarterfinals, Gakpo is not thinking about his future until we are champions. Um, that's fair. Manchester United are willing to pay the 51.4 million release clause of Real Sociedad's Martin Zubimendi. He's a very good player. I'm not sure about him and Casemiro as a two, though. Inter Milan want to sign Romelu Lukaku on loan for the season. We've not got to play this season, so yeah, I'd imagine they would want to get value for money. Flamengo are monitoring the system, the, the sorry, the situation of Lucas Moura after his former club Sao Paulo were unable to agree a deal 
for the former Brazil forward. Um, be good to see him back in Brazil. I think he would would absolutely tear the league up. Netherlands midfielder Frankie de Jong held talks with both Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain before leaving Ajax or Barcelona in 2019. That's not really news or gossip. That's just something that happened that everybody reported at the time. Paris Saint-Germain president Nasir Al-Khalifi says he doesn't think the club will make any new signings in January. They may not make any new signings ever again because um, there's a lot of reports that Qatar want out of the PSG business. Uh, Leeds are weighing up a bid for Chris Wood. Now, it is the, the, the spoofer football insider. But Chris Wood on loan? That mightn't be bad. He's been at Wolves at, at Leeds rather before. Bur- Burnley bought him from Leeds. He's not, not a great player, but he might make sense for them. Him and Yeah, him and him and Bamford in rotation wouldn't be bad. Former Leeds boss Marcelo Bielsa is being considered to replace Diego Alonso as the next Uruguay manager. Uruguay manager. If that happens, we're all moving to Uruguay. This podcast will broadcast live from Montevideo. Um last day's work then. Manchester United are ready to move for Cody Gakbo in January. It it looks very much like that's where he's going. It does look like that's exactly where he's going to go. Uh, Rafael Leao was expected to join Real Madrid in the summer, but he's now been lined up. No, this is all nonsense. He's staying where he is unless something strange happens. Barcelona are keen on Mohamed Kudus, and but he is more open to move to the Premier League. Ajax are looking for about forty million. Everton and Leeds have joined Aston Villa and Wolves in the battle to sign Matthias Cunha. Ooh. Doesn't really make sense for the Ev. Could make a lot of sense for Leeds as that nine. At Villa? Not really seeing him at Villa. See him at Wolves. Not at Villa. Maybe, maybe Villa, but I think I think Wolves and Leeds are the two that make sense there. Um, Wolves are also in talks to sign Felipe from Atletico. He's garbage, so that wouldn't be particularly good. Um, Tottenham manager Antonio Conte is hoping to sign Jasko Guardiola. We know that Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta will have 50 million to spend in January, but is not planning on a replacement for Gabriel Jesus. Gabriel Jesus is out for about three months with a knee injury. Uh, he's going to have surgery. That's not ideal. Um, Tottenham have joined Aston Villa, Fulham and Inter Milan in monitoring the situation of Frank Kessie. Do they need another plodding midfielder? I don't think they do. Atletico Madrid are hoping Joe Felix can increase his value during the World Cup as they look to sell in January. Watford are on the verge of signing Ishmael Kone. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, it looks like Romano might have robbed that off the Watford Observer. Uh, Spain right-back Hector Bellerin is close to joining Roma on loan from Barcelona. That's awful. Uh, meanwhile, Barcelona are on the lookout for a long-term replacement for Sergio Busquets and are interested in Yuri Tielemans. Um, Yuri Thielemans would be an awful fit to replace Busquets. Azuba Mendy, who someone mentioned earlier, he'd be great. A joint Saudi Saudi Qatari consortium 
is preparing a £3.2 billion bid take over Liverpool. This is by David Lynch. And David Lynch is exceptionally well-connected at Liverpool. Um, it, it baffles me that he's not working for a major national. It really does. How is he? Like, he's a significantly better reporter than pretty much... Neil Jones is good. Paul Joyce is obviously great. But David Lynch, after those two, is the best journalist covering Liverpool. Like, he's significantly better than James Pearce. So, I, I just don't know how he doesn't have a national job with the Guardian. Andy Hunter's good, so maybe not the Guardian, but I don't know. somebody should be hiring him to work. The Independent or the Telegraph or something. Because Bascom's awful. Um, right, that'll do. We'll leave it there. Um, we leave it on Chris Bascom. He's actually not awful. He's actually not awful. Um, he's decent enough. He just doesn't seem to write much anymore. He seems to be on holiday all the time. Um, we'll leave it at that. I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Parts.